As wildlife photographers, we probably pass by hundreds of possible subjects every day, and we don't even give them a second look. Fascinating creatures, hunting, eating, and surviving, right under our noses. I'm talking about the world of close-up photography and photographing insects. With close-up work, the subjects are boundless, especially when you're talking about insects. They're easy to find in just about any season. The only catch is they aren't the easiest wildlife subject to photograph. You can't call them to your shooting spot. They don't take the same path for water every evening as a, and a, and a guide's not gonna help you very much. You have to track them down yourself. Hi, I'm Terry Vanderheiden, your host of the Nature Photography Podcast, sponsored by imagelight.com. In this episode, I'll give you some tips on how to start in close-up photography, what equipment you'll need, and how to overcome the challenges of working very close to your subject. As always, we'll take some time to talk about our subjects, the insect, and learn a little bit about them and how we can take better close-up images of them. We want to represent their habitats and their struggles in their daily lives for the people that are viewing our images. Let me start by giving you a little history on how I started making close-up images. When I got started in photography, the first thing I wanted to do was photograph things in close-up. I found it deeply interesting to see the detail in things we never paid attention to. The texture in a football, the detail in coins, the scratches and the marks that were made on all kinds of surfaces from leather to porcelain. It was fun for me to create an image and then quiz my family as to what the subject was when all they had to go on was this little section of a close-up that I shot. Since I grew up on a small farm, wildlife was everywhere. When I started to look close at things, there were even more subjects than I could ever photograph. After doing a little research at the library, yes, that was before the internet, I realized that I needed to move the lens away from the film plane in order for me to focus closer to my subject. They had the same tools we have today that were called extension tubes, but a more versatile device I saved up for was a bellows. A bellows contraption was essentially an expandable black fabric box that sat on a rail system. They still sell these things if you're so inclined to get really close to your subjects. I would thread on the lens on the one end and then attach the bellows to the camera body. So this would extend my lens away from the camera and allowed me to get very, very close to my subjects. The bellows would extend about six inches in length and fully extended, I could shoot things up to eight to one in close-up ratio, truly macro photography by definition. So for true macro photography, you need to have a magnification of one to one or beyond. Everything else is otherwise considered close-up photography. Not that it really matters, so you, but just so you know, one-to-one -one means that magnification is the actual size on the sensor of your camera. So since a full-size sensor these days in the horizontal position is typically 24 millimeters tall by 36 millimeters wide, to achieve one-to-one -one on an image, your subject has to be actual size. Let's, let's take a US quarter. This coin is just about 24 millimeters tall. Photograph it at one-to-one -one actual size, you'd have to fill up the frame from top to bottom with the quarter. That close and closer is true macro photography. 
Suffice it to say that most of us will be doing close-up photography, which will be plenty to learn without getting into macro photography. Now, back to my bellow setup. On our farm, we had commercial beehives, so one day I decided to take one of the stock honeycombs laying around and use it as a background. These honeycombs are pre-made, so the bees don't waste time and energy building the honeycombs. They just start filling them up with honey. This makes a hive that much more productive when the beekeeper is harvesting the honey. The honeycombs also make a great pattern background to use in photography. One of the things we learned was that insects don't move around near as fast if they're cold. So the simple solution for me at the time was to capture our subject, put it in the refrigerator for a short time, and kind of chill them out. Since I was using this long bellows system, the downside to that was it took a lot of light in order to make an exposure. I couldn't afford an electronic flash in those days, so I used a high-intensity halogen reading light in order to light up my honeycomb set. I used a couple of them, actually. In order to make it look real, we poured a bit of honey on the honeycomb, got a good focus, and then went to the refrigerator and got our subject. We gingerly placed the sedate subject on the honey and started photographing. What we didn't plan for was that the high-intensity lights that were going on quickly warmed up the set and our subject. We also didn't think it all the way through because we used a hornet instead of a honeybee, which you know is really dumb when you consider the composition and whatnot. But when it got warmed up, it was really ticked off at us and it spent the next half hour chasing us around the room. Even though my first big experiment with close-up photography went a little sideways, I was hooked and I've been shooting close-up subjects ever since. For those of you just starting out with close-up photography, I'll go over everything you need equipment-wise to get started, as well as some tips for having success right out of the gate. For the listeners that already have experience with close-up, I'll go over some advanced techniques that will really push your close-up photography to the next level. We'll get started with this right after the break. As a professional photographer, there's one tool that I use just about every day. And no, it's not my camera. It's my computer. More specifically, Adobe Lightroom. I've been using Lightroom from the very beginning since it was introduced back in 2007. I've taught many photographers how to use Lightroom in my hands-on classes, as well as through online training. I feel this program is the best available for organizing my photographs so I can find a certain image among thousands that I've shot over the years. I especially like it for processing my raw photographic files. While many of my final images get some sort of treatment in Photoshop, all of my images are processed through Adobe Lightroom. All of them. My goal is to do as much image processing as I can in Lightroom first. This makes my workflow go so much faster. One of the things that makes my workflow faster are the preset brushes. I've created several myself that are built specifically for wildlife and nature photography. These brushes are easy to load, easy to use, and make developing your images faster and more creative. For listeners of this podcast, I'm offering a special collection of nature photography Lightroom preset brushes. You can use these to improve your wildlife photography and your landscape work. When you download my Lightroom brushes, you will get exclusive access to instructional videos to learn how each and every brush works and when to use them. Find out more by visiting my website, imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T dot com. Click on the podcast page and you can order them right there.
When you're just starting on close-up photography, you're gonna need some specialized equipment. If all you have is a beginning camera kit, the first piece of equipment you can get into are close-up filters. These are simple filters with magnifying glass that allows you to focus closer on smaller subjects. They simply thread onto the front of your existing lens and they change the working dynamics of, say, a normal lens. While they do allow you to get close to your subject, the quality of the glass in these filters is not the best. So you might lose a bit of quality in the final image. This is definitely a budget option for photographers starting out to see if they even like close-up work. The next most inexpensive item is a set of extension tubes. These are barrels that look like lenses, but there's no glass in them. They're built to put directly onto the camera body, which you would just like a lens. Then you attach your existing lens to the end of that tube. A lot of times they're sold in a kit that gives you three different lengths. They can be used all at the same time, they can be stacked together, or you can use them one at a time. The whole idea is it moves your lens farther away from the camera body. The farther you can get your lens away from the camera, the closer you can focus. So photographing a simple flower, you can't get close enough to fill up the frame with the petals. However, when you put on an extension tube, you can focus nice and close and only choose to show the, say, the center of the flower if you wish. The drawbacks of an extension tube are mainly that you lose infinity on the lens or the inability to shoot distant objects. So you can't just put a tube on and go shoot anything you want. You can only be shooting close-up subjects when you have the extension tube attached. The next step for equipment is a macro lens. It can also be called a micro lens. That's what I use. The lens is the most versatile lens in my bag in that you can use it to focus closely and in many cases, focus to one-to-one -one, or use it for portraits or you could use it for landscape. It's probably the first lens I'd take if I was limited in some reason to take only one lens with me. I highly recommend these lenses. I use a 105 micro lens as part of my Nikon gear. For some reason, Nikon calls them micro lenses, not macro lenses. So depending on your manufacturer, they might be called either or. 105 millimeter lens helps with the subject to the front of the lens distance. When I have the lens all the way racked out, one-to-one, -one, my distance between the front of the lens and the subject is about four and a half inches. With shorter micro lenses, like the 55 millimeter, all the way racked out, you only have like about an inch or two away from your subject for full magnification. So you can probably see how being only an inch or two away from your subject, it could be, let's say it's a skittish butterfly, how that could be problematic. This is why a longer macro lens is easier to work with. I know that Nikon makes a 200 millimeter micro lens and I assume other manufacturers have something that's also comparable. These lenses work the same, but the longer the focal length, the longer the working distance can be. The biggest problem with doing close-up photography is the lack of depth of field. The areas that are in focus when you're shooting with extension tubes or macro lens is very, very narrow. The closer you get, the less depth of field you'll find. When you're photographing an insect, the front of the face may be in focus, but the rest of the insect drops out of focus very fast. This causes two problems. First, it's in the capture. So there you are, your macro lens is almost all the way racked out on full magnification, and you're say five inches from a honeybee sitting on a flower. As you lean in any slight movement from you, the bee, the flower being moved in the breeze, 
the bee's face will fall in and out of focus. It can be hard to be in the right position for the capture to have that favorite spot of the honeybee in focus. To combat this, we usually move our aperture to a tiny hole, maybe F22 or F32, to have more extended depth of field. Though it's hard to see through the lens, but when you look at it in a completed exposure, you'll see that you have much more of the honeybee as in focus. Whenever you're shooting a wide depth of field by adjusting your lens to say 22 or smaller, your second problem rears its ugly head. You need a lot of light to shoot at something at F22. If you're trying to make a capture where your subject just crawled under a leaf, then even being in bright sun won't help you. The shadows are just too dark to shoot at F22 and to have a speedy enough shutter speed that you can handhold it or stop the insect's slight movement. Obviously, you could boost your ISO up, but everyone knows that when you increase the ISO, you're introducing noise into the photograph. Noise will make the image not look as sharp, and in some cases, could seriously damage the final image. My rule of thumb is to only increase the ISO when you have to. This is one of those cases where you may not have to raise the ISO to get the exposure that you want. More on this after the break. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely into photography. Coincidentally, so am I. I'm Terry Vanderheiden, full-time professional photographer. Not only do I create photographs for a living, I do photography just for fun. In my spare time, I also teach photography classes and workshops. If you'd like to find out more about what I offer, check out my website at imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. You can also find some videos I've created over on YouTube. Just search for Terry Vanderheiden or search for uh, how to use a monopod and you can find me that way. Feel free to email me if you have any questions on the topics I cover in this podcast or suggestions on how I can improve it. If you like this podcast, please give it a star rating and maybe even a quick review so others can find it easier. It would be great if you could share this podcast with other friends who might have an interest in photography. I'd really appreciate it. And thanks again for listening. When you don't want to increase your ISO, but you may need to in order to get the shot, consider using the electronic flash. One of the big drawbacks of using flash is that by nature, the light it produces drops off very quickly. So trying to use a small aftermarket flash for shooting something at any distance, say after 10 feet, is pretty futile. However, in close-up work, the flash is only a few inches from the subject, so the light fall off is not a huge problem. Can you use the flash that pops up on your camera? Yes. Can you use the flash that you attach to the camera's hot shoe? Of course. Let's go outside and find a subject or two and see how this flash idea works. I'm outside at a public park and it seems to be just teeming with insect activity. Namely the honeybees bouncing from flower to flower. While I can walk around and chase the bees to each flower, I've decided to just sit and watch for a minute. I've noticed that the bees land on particular flowers and they seem to do it over and over again. 
I don't know if it's the same bee coming back for seconds or just different bees checking out that same popular flower. Either way, I'm just going to set up on a good flower and wait for the subject to land and pose for me. When I first got into position, the bees kept their distance. However, after sitting here for a while and trying not to move, I've noticed a few of these worker bees have come back to check out this favorite flower. <laughs> so I'm in business. I'm using my flash on camera. Can I... Uh, all right. <laughs> all right, here's a good tip for you. When you're out photographing insects, make sure that your hat doesn't have a little little tiny thread hanging from the back of it just to graze the back of your neck because as you're focusing on these insects really close up to feel something on the back of your neck is uh, uh, a little bit alarming so uh, always check that first it's uh, always a good idea at any rate I'm using my flash on camera and I'm connected to a hot shoe on top of the camera and I've lowered my shutter speed to get more ambient light to blend in the background As I get really close, I'm getting some weird light fall off from the flash. It seems to only happen when I'm, when I'm really, really close. I believe that it's the flash casting a shadow caused by the front of the lens. I have a workaround for that. To solve this flash problem, I picked up a flash that is perfect for close-up. It's a ring flash. This unit attaches to the front of the lens so it can never create a shadow from the lens itself because it's right in front. The brand I bought is called a Nissan MF18. This has some nice features to it, but the best part for me is that it divides the ring into two sides. Each side is independently ratioed, which means I can put more light out of the right side and have the left side just be fill or vice versa. Being that it's a ring light, the light covers a nice wide area and with the ability to manually input independent power to either side, makes it super versatile. Setup was a snap and I could start shooting right away since it has TTL through the lens metering. It will fire the flash and shut off the amount of light that goes out when the exposure is right and this all happens before the shutter closes. It's really nice. This is very easy to set up and use, and you'll get some great close-up shots with just adding the ring light to your arsenal. Next up, how do we deal with that pesky shallow depth of field? Well, stacking, of course. If you haven't heard of the focus stacking concept, this is how it works. You shoot a shot with your focus on the front of the subject, then the next shot with the focus change slightly to get a little deeper into the subject. You create a series of images with only the focus changing, then bring all those images into computer software like say Photoshop and merge only the sharp parts of the image to one fully sharp final image. I happen to use a software by Heliacon Soft called Heliacon Focus. This standalone product works with Adobe Lightroom so I can export a series of images right from Lightroom and return back to Lightroom a finished version. There is a word of warning here when doing extreme close-up images. You are likely to use 20 to 100 images depending on how much coverage you're looking for. While the software does a really good job of aligning the images, you're better off to be working on a sturdy base like a tripod or, or at least a monopod. 
another product that Helicon sells. It's called the Helicon FB tube. This is a small extension tube that works with your macro lens to automatically change the focus in tiny increments. This makes focus stacking really easy. Some cameras now have this feature built in to the camera where you can change the focus in small increments for focus stacking. But this FB tube really works great. Let's go outside and I'll give you my step-by-step -step workflow on focus stacking. Okay, so we're outside ready to do some focus stacking. I've chosen a flower this time as my test subject. The camera's on a tripod and the FB tube is attached to my camera and my 105 micro from Nikon is attached to the tube. Since the FB tube acts as a slight extension tube, I've lost the ability to focus on infinity, but I've gained the ability to focus quite a bit closer. When you're getting ready to compose for a focus stack, you need to consider that the software will arrange the images to fit. So if you start too close, something might get cropped out in the final image. My recommendation is to compose a little wider than normal so you can crop in after your stacked images is complete. Your camera's stable, and now you need your subject to be stable. If the subject is a flower or an insect on a flower, even a slight breeze can move this setup greatly while it's under close magnification. So be sure to anchor the flower somehow. So maybe use a clamp to your tripod or a clamp to a stick of some type. I use this really cool tool called a Plamp 2. It's spelled P-L-A-M-P. It's a clamp on one end and I attach that to my tripod and then it has a little segmented snake arm of about 20 inches that ends in a very small adjustable clamp. I use this device to clamp a stem of a plant to keep it from moving during the shot and the end clamp is so delicate I don't even harm the plant when I'm done with the shot. The Plant 2 is made by the Wimberly folks and this product can be picked up at their website tripodhead.com. Uh, it's, it's well worth it to me to have this, de this device in my bag. Since I'm stacking the image, I need to be on manual exposure. I want all the exposures to be the same when I'm bringing them into the computer. If you're off a bit, they'll all be off by the same amount, which would be easy to fix in Lightroom as I only shoot raw images all the time. If I am using flash, I want to make sure that the flash has recycled properly between flashes so that the exposure is, remains consistent. So I don't want to shoot too fast. If I'm not using a flash, I can put my camera on the highest frames per second and the FP tube will keep changing the focus with each shot. To start a stack, I shoot a photo of my fingers in front of the lens. That way I know that this is a new stack when I'm looking at all these in Lightroom. I then take a pair of tweezers or an edge of a card that I suspend just in front of the subject to get my first focus on. That way I know that my stack will start in front of where the subject is and then eventually the subject will come into focus. Once this is done, I start shooting. I keep shooting until I'm way past the finished focus line. I can always toss out images that I don't want to use when I'm selecting the images in Lightroom to send on to the stacking software. If you don't have an FB tube, you can still do this kind of work. You just need to slightly change the focus manually in between each shot. The FB tube just makes it uh, easier. 
The best part of using this focus stacking method is that I'm now shooting at f6.3. I do this for a couple of reasons. I don't have to shoot at f32 to maximize my depth of field. With stacking, I can get everything in focus that I want. Also, I found that the that at f6.3, it's the sharpest f-stop on this lens. Lenses vary, but usually the sharpest part of the lens is about two stops over wide open. Also, shooting at a wider f-stop allows in a lot more light, so my flashes don't have to use so much power so they can fire more rapidly. And this is also good for stopping action because we remember that when we're firing a really low power flash, it's gonna go off at a really short duration, which can stop action really good for you. And I can easily bring in more of the natural background without having to lower my shutter speed too much. All right, so that's the primer on close-up photography. Contact me if you have questions. You can always reach me through my website, imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. Well, that's it for the season one of the Nature Photography Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, this is Terry Vanderheiden, your host of the Nature Photography Podcast, sponsored by ImageLight.com. <laughs>